Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 36, where we're traveling back to 1978 and the 33rd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Michael Colgrass, for his work for percussion quartet and orchestra, Deja Vu. And as a special treat, we're coming to you with our first ever live recording at the UMKC Conservatory's Kansas City Conducting Symposium. Thank you, audience. Thank you, audience. Hello. Well, look at that. Look at that. Just proving to you that we're coming to you live. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, Michael Colgrass, Andrew, what's your experience with uh, Michael Colgrass? I'm so glad you asked, Dave. Yeah. Uh, so, I first came across Colgrass because, as you know, I did my dissertation work and a lot of my early research on Harry Parch. And I oh, have he here CDs today. the Harry Parch CD. Yes, this is the CRI recording of Harry Parch. Uh, and so, I first came across Colgrass because he went to the University of Illinois and he worked with Harry Parch. Uh, and he actually is on this early recording from 19, uh, the 1955 revision of U.S. Highball, which is the focus of my, uh, my dissertation. So that's the first time I encountered his name. And then I just started seeing his name everywhere. I have more show well, and tell. Oh, there's more. There's more show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I used to check that one yeah, out from the Yeah, the 25th yeah. retrospective concert of the music of John Cage. Uh, and Michael Colgrass is a percussionist on here. So that's the first time I encountered his name. I was as a percussionist playing for all these experimental music composers in the 1950s. So Parch Cage, a whole bunch of others, but that's where I first came across his name. What about you, Dave? I knew the name. I didn't know any oh, of his... Oh, so sad. Uh, well, I know. That's, that's why that makes this today even more interesting. Uh, I didn't know any of his music. Um, so you never played any of his music in band? No, I'm going to probably... Uh, they're, they're getting mad at you. They're going to throw tomatoes at me that's when right. I say I'm not a band person. I'm a, I, I own, a, I, as my colleague, uh, my theory colleague is, used to play the violin. He says he owns a violin now. I own a horn. Uh, I used to play horn a lot, but I went into orchestra. So uh, I did go that direction. So I never did come across any of uh, Colgrass's music. So I'm very sorry. Please don't throw tomatoes. We <laughs> had them check the tomatoes at the door. It's yes, fine. that's yeah, right. Totally fine. All right. Well, maybe it's time to tell the story. Telling the story. So, Colgrass not only went to the University of Illinois, where both of us went as well, uh, but he's from Illinois and from an immigrant family. Uh, Kind of an interesting background here. His father uh, was an Italian immigrant and was working as a professional boxer, which is kind of an interesting way to go. Like Uh, most composers' fathers. Most composers, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, and he, Michael Colgrass, was best known, actually it ties in well to this piece because he was known as a percussionist and became, uh, you saw a film called Reveille with Beverly. I just love that Which name. is a great name. Uh, and saw this, a jazz standard called Big Noise from Winnetka. And I always like that one because I'm from the town next to Winnetka and my high school, New Trier High School, is in Winnetka. So all these uh, Illini connections. I know, I know exactly. So it's all part of uh, part of it. But he became wanted to become a jazz drummer and really became into that. Really interested in uh, playing drums. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah, had his first band when he was eleven. Three Jacks and a Jill. (laughs) You (laughs) too. But went to Illinois as a percussion student, studying there with Paul Price, and that's one of the reasons why he ended up working with Harry Parch because that was when Parch was there 
working and living in uh, Urbana-Champaign and recording some of his early pieces, re-recording them. Now, you mentioned John Cage earlier. Was Did he know Cage there at the same time? He also time knew Cage too? there. Cage yeah, was so there. He was, he was there at that fortuitous time when Cage and Parch didn't overlap, but they abutted next to each other. Uh, and he actually showed one of his early pieces to Cage, hmm. one of his early percussion pieces to Cage, and Cage encouraged him like he did. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why he was, he felt like he should go into composition. Mm-hmm. And also because he thought the music he was playing was boring, <laughs> mid-century music, so he wanted to, uh, to begin to compose his own. And really that's what he did when he got out of college, was he went to New York, he was a session drummer for a lot of groups. Um, of course, we talked about Parch. Um, my famous factoid is he played in the Pitt Orchestra for West Side Story, the original performance oh. of West Side Story. Because he uh, was a ringer for the New York Phil. He was a ringer for the New York Phil, he was. Uh, in fact, for the Columbia Stravinsky conducts Stravinsky sessions. He's also on those recordings. Oh, my Rite of Spring recording. Your Rite of Spring is recording is right there. Yeah. See, if you read the liner notes, you would have known Colcraft before now. Uh, I know, I'm not a good student. Uh, but then moved really into f- composition by the 1970s, the time he's winning the Pulitzer, he's pretty much moved away from performing and fully embraced composition and become quite successful. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm guessing that he probably studied serialism, uh, was, had some background in serialism. Well, of course he did at the of, University of Illinois. Of course, as, a, as an alum of the composition department. I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't like Mozart till I was 25, so... Because uh, it was all 20th century, all new music all the time. Uh, but yeah, you had a lot of uh, post-tonal techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and like some of our previous winners, like Jacob Druckmann, who we just won a couple years ago, uh, he was very interested in avant-garde music. But then I wonder if it's because of his training and his background as a kind of jack-of-all-trades drummer and percussionist that he became interested in expanding out of that world. Yeah, I mean, he's one of these, there's like this move, right, in the late to night, uh, mid to late 1960s where composers who had been so much into serialism begin to move into a much more uh, expressive type of compositional style that allows them to bring in tonality. I mean, we talk a lot about George Rockberg as kind of one of the poster children from doing this, but Druckmann's one who does it and Colgrass is one who does mm-hmm. it. Uh, and also to give you an idea of how... Um, interested he was, uh, Colgrass was, in kind of the avant-garde. He developed his own notational system, very interested in graphic notation. And in fact, John Cage in 1969 put a book together called Notations, a very famous book, mm-hmm. uh, and Colgrass is there. So we'll put this in the show notes for everyone to kind of go and see, but um, it's here for our audience to look at uh, Colgrass's page in John Cage's Notations, which includes a quote that he developed using the I Ching <laughs> and a page that he also picked using the I Ching uh, of Colgrass's um, manuscripts in the late 1960s as he was making this change, moving away from serialism into a more kind of holistic embrace. Mm. Mm-hmm. Would you call it eclectic even? Yeah, I think eclectic. Yeah. I mean, that's the word that we usually would use yeah. with someone like Druckmann as well. So, um, But for me, Colgrass is even more... Um, almost neo-impressionist in some of those early pieces mm-hmm. that he's, he's pulling from with more Debussy, Ravel kind of sounds in terms of the way he structures his pieces too. Well, maybe we should go Behind the Notes. Behind the Notes. All right, Dave. Why call it deja vu? What do you think? Well, uh, do you want an educated answer from listening to it or just why would one call a piece deja vu? And let's see if it comes true. I always true. like the educated answer. Well, I know, I do too. Okay, <laughs> then probably because 
you experience a sense of deja vu. I've been here before. I've been somewhere. Something that's happening to me. I've I've been in this place or I've had this experience. So, this particular piece, thinking about you know, this was 1978, and looking at uh, kind of where he'd been, where Colgrass had been, because he was born in 34, mm -hmm. I think. So, uh, kind of looking at where he it was his life as a performer in a lot of ways. So you've get you get a bit of jazz, you've got some lyrical music. Uh, I read an interview with him recently that he talked about how music lyricism was extremely important to him. Mozart, Beethoven, that that you know the classic Schubert. Uh, and so you get that, you get passages of avant-garde music. It's sort of a mixture of things, and it's kind of like his life, looking at his life as a performer in 17 minutes. Yeah. So you have a composition degree from the University of Illinois, as we yes, have I established. <laughs> so you have an idea of deja vu, of recollections. What form would you use? If you had to pick a musical form to represent deja vu, what would you go with? Mm. Um, probably some kind of fantasy okay. or some kind of something not structured because I think life moves in different ways and it's, you know, you, you spend bits of time and doing different things in your life. So probably some sort of free or fantasia type form. Which is what this sounds like the first time you listen to it. It yeah. wasn't until I started digging into the score that I realized that, uh, no, it's actually your favorite form, theme and variations. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> There's a theme that he presents right at the very beginning that he then, um, it's kind of serialized at the beginning, yeah. but then he kind of spins it out uh, throughout the rest of the piece and it, it shows up everywhere. Once you know what you're looking for in the score, you can see it. I don't know if you hear it so much because when I listen to it, I hear the different styles that you were talking about, the jazz, the, the lyrical. I hear all those, but it's very much there as a structuring device just kind of underneath the surface, but on the sound of it, it sounds much more organic in the it, way that it unfolds. Yeah, definitely, and there's a lot of uh, space. I think a lot of uh, kind of empty, emptiness going on, and it's event, sort of event-based, so maybe that's the theme and variations kind of demarcating themselves. Yeah, but, almost every time you come back to the theme, you get a, a different style. Yeah. It's yeah. almost a stylistic theme and variations more than manipulating the, f uh, the, the actual melody or the rhythms or anything like that. Well, maybe I like that kind better. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You'll give it a pass. This I'll time. give it a pass. <laughs> so why did he compose this work? Well, uh, being a percussionist and being a, an alum of New York Philharmonic, he knew people in the orchestra. And so he wrote this for the principal uh, percussionists in the New York Phil. There aren't a lot of pieces, certainly not in the orchestral world, for percussionists and orchestra. So it was a commission, a project to provide commissions uh, for or concertos for principal players in the orchestra. So it was designed for the timpanist and then the three auxiliary percussionists in the orchestra. So that's a, a pretty good thing uh, to have those a group of musicians. And uh, in their interview I read, they, the interviewer said, oh, so did you have good performances of your music? And he said, uh, yeah. It was nice to have the New York Philharmonic playing my music. I mean... I hung out with them, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is the fact that, uh, I mean, we just talked about that you don't have many percussion 
orchestra types of pieces. For this piece, he actually thought very strongly about uh, how he wanted to integrate and especially how he wanted to take some of those more delicate percussion sounds and push them out over the sound of the orchestra and get them out into the audience. And so he talked about how he would do what he called invisible doubling is how he <laughs> described it in the program note. Uh, but I love the way that he described it. He said, I use the orchestra the way a cook uses herbs to heighten the subtle flavors of the various percussion instruments and make them more memorable, which I thought was a really a nice image. interesting yeah. way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, he also provided a, a diagram for the conductor, for the musicians to know how to put together uh, the percussion instruments. So who's going to be playing what instrument and how they should be arranged on the stage so that they would be close to whatever instrument would ultimately end up doubling them. And, and make them. So the string bass is going to be with the timpani, so they're kind of on that side of the orchestra, kind of supporting them. Um, string harmonics kind of supporting mm -hmm. the, the higher bell sound. So being able to make that work by actually physically placing them on the stage so that you orchestrationally, they work together. So if we're thinking about a concerto, you're usually thinking that they would be the stars mm -hmm. and they would be the virtuosos and the, you know, I do know one wind band work for uh, a concertino for wind, percussion and winds by Clifton Williams. I remember playing that in high school. It, oh, we're getting a lot of head nods. Getting some head nods, so I do remember that one. Okay, the, the tomatoes. You're saving yourself a little bit. <laughs> maybe digging myself out a little bit here. Uh, but that, that ha does have a lot of activity and a lot of, the, it's clear the percussion are very active. Mm -hmm. Here, I think, uh, the, the, as you said, or as Colgrass said, they... The orchestra kind of is the seasoning, but um, it's it's they're not it's not totally a virtuosic kind of thing. No, it's it's much. It really is. I mean, th we keep coming back to the style. And I think maybe we should play a little bit of the music for everyone. But yeah. uh, coming back to this idea of a style based, and so whatever he can do to make recreate that style within the orchestra and the percussion, he's going to do it. Uh, first, maybe just a, this is about four minutes into the piece, um, and you get this really jazzy section. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear how he's creating a, recreating his jazz band experience with the orchestra. Sounds a lot like the kind of jazz I used to play at the University of Illinois. <laughs> uh, there was a, a, a composer on faculty named Morgan Powell, and I played horn in the jazz band. And there was a piece he wrote, or a jazz tune he wrote called Volume 12. Oh, there you Get go. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. It well, was that was, that was big noise from Winnetka. There yeah, you go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, what you bring yeah. up is really interesting is that it, there is the kind of jazz level, but then there's all this other stuff that's kind of stacked up underneath it, mm -hmm. uh, including, I don't know if, if you could hear, but those long string notes, that's the theme mm. that he's got underneath just kind of, kind of uh, almost like a cantus firmus, right? Just kind of floating up underneath there while this other is going on above. Mm -hmm. And on top, and then in other sections, which I know we'll listen to some more, but you get the Webern 
Klangfarben right. melody. Uh, I I hear a lot of messian, especially with the yeah. the uh, metal percussion. A lot of messian. Yeah, you'll hear. I think especially. Let's listen to one more. Yeah. Uh, that gives us a little more idea of first that kind of airiness, and then some of those more lush kind of romantic. There's a uh, string line that just oh, soars yeah. out here nice. uh, at the end of this uh, example. So it's kind of that free, it sounds very free, but also just very ethereal and mm -hmm. about timbre. A lot of our composers we've talked about recently have been talking about timbre and different tone qualities. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a definite move in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, in a more timbral-based, gesture-based comp composition. And that's ultimately what it sounds like, I think, as you, as you work through it. Mm -hmm. So 17 minutes. Does it? Do you feel uh, that... Does the you've already mentioned the form? Does it feel? Can, is it apparent for all seventeen minutes? Because I, when I was listening, I sort of would drift at times, and uh, kind of then it would get I'd get pulled back in. One of those big hits would come. Like yes, the jazz one of those hit. big. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, almost with regularity, you have kind of a growth, big hit, and then comes back to this more ethereal music. So absolutely, um, but it kept my attention just because I was following lines, yeah. and there was always something. It was never just. I felt like I was floating in texture. There's no, always no. something to grab onto and that would pull me through a given section. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially towards the end, there's a kind of neo-classical oh, descending right. second sequence that I keep kept hearing kind of wafting in out with clarinets. It was really, it is very deja vu, kind of your, it could be any of us in this room too, listening back on our own musical experiences and our own path to where we are now. Well, and it's, I think also the deja vu comes from there are no quotations. No. This is a big thing in the 70s. A lot of composers who moved away from serialism, George Rockford, Druckmann, yeah. would use actual quotes from earlier pieces. Colgress doesn't do that at all. Uh, he's making everything up. There's, there's no actual quotations, but these allusions to it, which I think is also that deja vu, because you never quite remember exactly no, what happened. It's a little cloudy. It's, a, it's always cloudy. It's always filtered through your memory. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's accomplishing that just in the way that he's using those quotations. Not using quotations, but using sounds like quotations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, should we decide if this is a hit or a miss? Let's do it. Hit or miss? All right, so shall we go to the reviews? We always, start, we always start with what the jury has to All say. All right, we'll this. go to the jury. Okay, so the uh, first performance, as we mentioned, this was from uh, New York Philharmonic Concert. How about this for a concert? Very interesting. So this was performed uh, October 20th, Charles Ives' birthday, uh, October 21st and 23rd, 1977. Uh, first piece was Eine Kleine Nachtmusik. Okay. By Mozart, followed by this, Deja Vu. Then after intermission, we had uh, uh, Prokofiev's second piano concerto in G minor, and then end with Wagner excerpts from uh, Gutterdämmerung. That's a program and a half. That is a heavy, <laughs> heavy program. Uh, but that it was there, it was the new music piece. So the jury uh, report here from 1978, 
The jury unanimously recommends the work Deja Vu by Michael Kogras. The work was commissioned by New York Philharmonic. It adds a new dimension to the concerto repertory. The virtuoso, okay, virtuoso piano percussion parts are pitted against a richly colored orchestral texture. Deja Vu is a brilliant exploration of all the full range of percussion possibilities from mysterious bell sounds and primitive drumming to unbridled jazz of today. At other moments, it's evocative of subtle dreamlike states filled with intense yearning. It is fresh in its musical substance and highly imaginative in its treatment of the orchestra. So that was the positive uh, remarks there. Second choice, I know this is one of your favorite pieces, the concerto variations by Klaus Adam. Oh, I was listening to that last night. <laughs> I think you have that on your CD yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, never heard of never heard of that person. Klaus Adam, but it was uh, written with the support of an NEA and premiered in Carnegie Hall in 1977. So interesting. So who was on the the board this year? Chairman of the board. We have two former winners, Robert E. Ward. Oh yes, composer of. The famous opera. <laughs> the Crucible. Uh, Lester Trimble, composer from the Juilliard faculty, and Carl Husa, known to many of our audience here as a Czech-American composer at Cornell. So, so two former winners. Two former winners on that. And then, uh, yeah, then there's a little note at the end here, a little award or a, a message to Robert Ward saying, thank you and your distinguished colleagues for the jury for this report. It's been a great pleasure to serve with you. So that's a really ideologically diverse panel. That's something that we haven't seen so much. So I can see how they would be drawn to something like this that is so eclectic in many ways and what it's drawing from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, when it premiered, uh, our good friend Harold Schoenberg, who we go back to again and again at the New York Times, uh, in his review said, Deja Vu is a one-movement concerto for percussion quartet and orchestra, and it uses the full battery from timpani to vibraphones and all kinds of exotic percussion. There are some complicated structural and rhythmic devices, but despite the frequent dissonance and tremendous surges of energy, the music did hit the ears easily. Ooh. Fragments of melody were tossed around, and every now and then they assembled themselves in a quiet romantic manner. Indeed, there were places where the thematic material sounded tantalizingly familiar, though the composer apparently was never quoting anybody directly. Probably he was writing in the manner of. Some gorgeous sounds emerged. Mr. Colgrass understands the entire potential of percussion, and some of his mixtures were very beautiful. That's quite a, a from him, glowing a, review. From him, that's a hugely glowing review. Yeah, because he was known as being particularly crotchety towards he new was. music. So, um, and we've had some very snarky reviews. We've had from some him good ones in the past. So he was very positive on that. Uh, interestingly, too, this is not the only form this piece is comes in, right? That's right. In 1986, uh, he produced a wind band orchestration uh, for it. Um, kept the hearts, the celesta, used two string, string basses, so retained a lot of what was in the original orchestration and just kind of moved it over into the wind ensemble. And I think you can hear, even in the excerpts that we play, that he was heavily relying on winds to oh, begin yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of it that made it uh, pretty easy for him to port over to a different ensemble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, my question before we give our our verdict here is why is this piece not played by orchestra? That's orchestras? exactly what I thought. I mean, you, you, it's always fun to have a percussion concerto because it's you know you get to highlight a, a section of the orchestra that doesn't get a lot of action, especially in orchestral music. Early, well, it's flashy for an audience flashy. to watch. Yeah, this yeah. has a lot of stuff going on. It would be attractive to listeners. So why is it not 
Well, it's barely recorded. No, we, we have, there's a Leonard Slatkin recording. Which is which the premiere recording. 1983, I yes. think it took five years to actually record. So, uh, a mystery. It's a mystery to me. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. But I, I'm going to guess that we probably agree. This is a huge hit. This is a huge hit, <laughs> this, is a huge, sure. this is one of the best uh, yeah. pieces that we've listened to in, in quite some time. This is one that usually I'll listen to it a couple of times. I kind of listened on repeat for a couple of days just because there was more to hear in it. Yeah. What about you? Oh, complete uh, hit. And the, the, we've had a few in recent vintage where uh, I've been listening to it in the background doing other work and I don't even notice that it's over and it's gone on to the next piece because it was so un... Like maybe Druckmann who we <laughs> like talked the, about yes, so much. Yes, <laughs> for example. And it, funny enough, on that CD with the, uh, well, streaming, of with the, the premiere of this piece, it's followed by a Druckmann piece. And I really didn't even know it was like, okay, this sounds... Yeah, whatever. Uh, so, the, the, how do you really feel about <laughs> Jacob Truckman, Dave? <laughs> not a not a big fan. Uh, but this one, yeah, I, I you know, especially for a seventeen minute work, because we've talked about how sometimes a lot of new music can, well, a lot of new music can be wear out its welcome. Sometimes mm -hmm. twenty minutes of of just one movement piece is tough for an audience. And I think what Schoenberg says there is, is very true. It is attractive to a listener. And that I was trying to think about why. Well, you've got the illusions, you've got mixtures of style, you have constantly changing textures, but things to grab onto. Mm -hmm. And for me, that makes it very successful. It's not all clungfarb and melody where I just I can't follow what's going on at all. So I think for me, it's a big hit. And I, I, would, I almost want to write the Kansas City Symphony and say, hey, You've got some great percussionists. Mm -hmm. How about you put this on? It would be awesome to see. Well, I, I even emailed, of course, Sandbox Percussion here on the UMKC oh, yeah. faculty. I emailed Happens them and said, have you ever performed this? And they said, never. Oh. So I don't know if there's anyone in the room who might want to remedy that, but there are plenty of conductors around here who might be interested in uh, performing this piece. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, that's especially great because they're a quartet, so it's yeah. like ready-made to have them play it. But it just shows that it's just, it's not known amongst orchestral percussion pieces today it's completely been completely been kind of shunted yeah. off to the to the but, forgotten realms but yet Colgrass's music is still played well, Colgrass's music is still played particularly or mm -hmm. yeah. very much played well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Michael Colgrass. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode where we'll explore another composer who has achieved lasting fame for a concert band work, Joseph Schwantner, who won the Pulitzer for Aftertones of Infinity. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.